in general, I've been impressed actually by how many believers put their time and resources in homes for uh, pregnant women who need help. I mean, it, all of these things you see, these, as I say, pregnancy centers, um, uh, homes for children, nearly all of them are supported by, are started by, staffed by, and financially supported by Christians, um, uh, believers in Christ. And uh, it's, so, so I think that's a, a testimony to um, people putting their money in their finances and their time and their resources where their mouth is. Um, so I can tell you a lot more stories of people who've actually done that also on an individual level. You know, I mean, I, I just think about like my own parents who took in and housed um, women who were unmarried and pregnant and didn't know what they were going to do. And in some cases, whose boyfriends had pressured the woman to have an abortion. Um, my parents adopted one of those babies and, and raised her as their own. So, and, and then people from their church helped them by uh, subsidizing the adoption and legal fees, wow. you know, thousands of dollars. So uh, yeah, there are exceptions, but I just don't see the, the church in general saying, no, we have no interest in uh, supporting financially or otherwise women who choose life for their babies. Keith, thank you, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Folds. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Kevin. It's good to be with you. I want to start off this uh, this afternoon reading a couple of things that will set our conversation in some context. First is a letter from an Egyptian laborer to his wife, dated June 17th, 1 B.C., gentleman's name is Hilarion, and he writes to his wife, Alice. He uh, calls her his sister, but that's just a convention. Hilarion to Alice, his sister, many greetings. Also to Barris, my lady, and to Apollinarian. Know that we are still, even now, in Alexandria. Don't be distressed if, at the general coming in, I remain at Alexandria. I pray and uh, plead with you, do take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive our wages, I will send them to you. If you deliver, if it is a male child, let it live. If it is female, cast it out. You told Aphrodisias, don't forget me, but how can I forget you? I pray, therefore, that you will not be distressed. And then it's dated in the year 29 of the Caesar, and then the, um, and then the month. We can turn to something written in the, at the end of the first century, maybe beginning of the second century, known as the Didache. Didache, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 and 2. 
Second commandment of the teaching is this. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not corrupt children. You shall not be sexually immoral. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not engage in sorcery. You shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. With these two texts, uh, maybe a hundred years apart, we have some very stark realities that we're presented with, where we see the clear instruction of a father to expose a child to commit infanticide of a child based on that child's uh, sex. And then in this, um, in this work known as the Didache, for those who may not be very familiar, a, a Christian work, we see very clear injunctions against two specific kinds of things dealing with children, uh, as far as this topic is concerned. Uh, you shall not commit abortion, and you shall not commit infanticide. Now, here we are recording on uh, in the first week of July 2022, and just a few weeks, uh, just a couple of weeks before this, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which I believe uh, was originally decided in the 70s. Is that correct? 1972 or something? Um, yeah, 1973. 73, okay. Um, it's been interesting watching reactions from my brothers and sisters in Christ on social media respond to or how they respond to this uh, to this overturning of Roe versus Wade. Some seem to to think that this is uh, th this is a, as good as gold. Others don't necessarily think that this is the victory that others think it is. And some Christians lament for various reasons. Keith, let me ask you, what kinds of reactions have you seen from, from Christians and, um, and, and kind of help us uh, think through some of the things related to this topic? Yeah. Well, I, uh, first of all, um, appreciate you starting with those um, documents to give us some historical perspective. That these are not questions that have only been dealt with in the last 50 or 100 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. These are things that um, humans have been thinking about for a long time and Christians have been thinking about for a long time. Um, you ask about sort of Christian reactions that I've seen. Uh, you mentioned social media. I don't do social media. Uh, and you're better for it, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I keep hearing, I do have a Facebook account, but that's it. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't use it uh, often. I don't uh, kind of scroll through other people's uh, things. So I've not seen much there. Um, I can say that, and I'm sure this is different, you know, in different cities, different subcultures of even our own country, but um, I've been um, at the church assembly uh, on two Lord's Days since the Dobbs decision was publicized and have heard uh, zero, absolutely nothing, one way or another about it. Mm -hmm. Church 
And that may even include, I would say, uh, private conversations. It has interesting come up in the public assembly or class or anything. I'm the one teaching the class that I go to, so that could be uh, on me. That might be an indictment on you. Maybe so, or a statement one way sure. or another. Um, but there is a, um, a reticence when it comes, in, in the congregation I attend, when it comes to anything that could be divisive or anything that could be construed um, as somehow political. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure we stay away from and keep politics out of the assembly, which itself is commendable. Um, I think it's interesting how abortion, because politics has gotten involved in abortion um, in this country, that we think of it as Americans, we think of it first as a political matter, um, when I would argue that it is primarily a moral issue, but yeah. uh, certainly. Uh, so I think that kind of explains the utter silence at church and why I don't have a lot of evidence to say one way or another. Another Here's how Christians uh, have been around have responded. Um, there are a few exceptions to that. I, I do recall a friend um, probably the day or the day after that I was with in person um, and we were looking at the news and he is also um, pro-life. You know, he's against the practice of abortion. But he said, yeah, that's good. I hope Christians aren't mean about this. Mm. And I said, what do you mean by that? (laughs) Christians aren't, uh, you hope they will not be mean. And he didn't really have a lot to say, but it sort of came down to, he hopes Christians aren't, you know, rubbing it in people's faces and that he hopes Christians don't somehow think that a political victory is what it means to, you know, be a Christian or somehow, you know, gives us a leg up or should be confused with the kingdom of God, all those sorts of things. Um, So there was that. Um, I did see a Facebook post by a friend who, after the decision, uh, simply posted, um, an autobiography, a link to an autobiography um, by Clarence Thomas, um, who is by any reckoning an impressive figure. Mm-hmm. Um, his story is very impressive, um, but you know he's obviously instrumental in the decision. Um, one of the comments <clears throat> under my friend's um, post just said, "And uh, now I unfriend you." <laughs> So I don't know if that guy was a Christian or not, but it was just interesting to see um, the response to my friend's post was someone unfriending him over that. Just, yeah, I would, I would, I can't even feign to be surprised because a lot of, uh, too often, and and I, I get this way sometimes too, too often that it takes something so small as that. you know, for someone to say, okay, I, I'm done with you. Well, yeah, and just to, I mean, like, you don't have to agree with everybody your Facebook friends with. <laughs> you know, Facebook friend doesn't mean that they are your best friend or you're whatever, right. spending a lot of time with them. You're, you're there just to, I guess, be friends and connect. That's that sort of thing. 
but to say, I don't even want to hear from you anymore <laughs> because you posted yeah. Thomas's autobiography is, uh, I think is it, all of this is sort of indicative and, and reflective of kind of where we are as uh, a society, I think. Um, yeah. Just driving around last night, um, I saw a marquee on a church that said, let women decide. So that interesting. Kind of, that kind of tells you uh, what they think about uh, this Supreme Court decision. I always yeah. want to let them decide what. <laughs> Choose what. We want women to decide um, whether um, a person uh, or a human being uh, has the right to live <laughs> or uh, let women decide whether they should have sex. I'm all for that. But anyway, let women decide. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I you were talking about the um, you know whether the silence or reticence or hesitance uh, hesitancy at at uh, at your church. I I think it has been alluded to where I work. Um, I was talking with a friend uh, just earlier this week, who is a preaching minister for. Another church in Texas, and I'll just say that. It narrows and, it to about 1,700 other <laughs> That's right, yeah. Churches of Christ, anyway. Yeah. Um, and as, as we were talking, he said that a person from their congregation had, had wondered, after two weeks of silence, wondered when he, as the preacher, was going to step up and make a statement about this and he was he and i were both frustrated at how this person crafted their argument for why he the preacher should should make this uh make some statement and why single out him as the preacher rather than say you know the shepherds of that particular congregation or any other number of of people it's uh it has been it has been strange um I, there's been quite a variety of of reactions and you know we've we've covered a lot of those um part of what i like to do in conversations like this really in any conversation that deals with uh something as something as significant as what we find in in really what I like to do with conversations like these is to root them historically because I, I think there's real wisdom and you and I would agree on this there's real wisdom in seeing you know what did our spiritual ancestors think about X, y and Z does that give us some insight? Maybe they were, mistaken on something maybe they are, are more enlightened than we are on something and so that's particularly why i opened up with this uh with this letter from this egyptian laborer and from the dinake now biblical passages specifically biblical passages do address all kinds of ethical issues keith are there any in the bible that specifically address abortion uh not directly um so yeah you can uh check your biblical concordance 
for the word abortion and yeah. not find anything in there. <laughs> not find it. Why? I'm just, I'm asking you to speculate. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a broader uh, phenomenon of the the fact that we have our own questions about uh, ethics or morals or really anything that we kind of questions we face in life. And we say, oh, the Bible has all the answers for us, you know, and we might be a little bit flummoxed when we go to scripture and notice, no, it doesn't talk about um, gun control or yeah. <laughs> artificial reproductive technology or whatever uh, it might be. And obviously there are some reasons why it doesn't talk about some things. Um, in some cases, it could be just the practice was not known in uh, the ancient world. Uh, this is not the case with abortion, as what you uh, just yeah. read earlier uh, points out. So the, the practice is known. So that's not why it's not mentioned in scripture. A couple of other reasons it could be. Besides, I mean, some will say um, that the biblical writers didn't care. That's why it doesn't mention a particular issue or ethical issue. Yeah. Could be but not necessarily. So I think this is, would be the case with abortion, a couple of other possibilities. One is um, that abortion was less common than it is today, and certainly not the political hot topic that it is. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that, um, that uh, politicians or kings or whoever didn't have some, something to say about it or even legislate about it. It, but it, I think it's fair to say that it seems in the ancient world that abortion for or against being for or against abortion was not uh, not a staple in anyone's platform. Right. Not I, as, I think that's fair to say. Not the flashpoint that yeah. today. So it's not on everyone's radar in the way that it is now because it's just not as common. So even in the the instance you mentioned, um, a lot of um, you know, getting rid of children would happen after the fact. You didn't know about a child's uh, defects or disabilities yeah. until the fact. Um, you didn't know it's uh, sex until yeah. after. And so those sort of things that now people will select for and make a choice about, perhaps, um, you didn't have that back then. Um, the other is simply that, and I would say this is the case, uh, the impermissibility of abortion among Christians and before them among Israel um, was a given. And so it was part yeah. of air breathed that this was not something that would be permitted. There was no debate. In other words, there was no debate about it. So when you see the biblical documents, these are all ad hoc occasional documents that are written by specific authors to address specific human communities in their time and place and situations and take the letters of Paul, for example, addressing particular problems in these congregations. Um, that apparently was not one of the questions the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. Yeah. If he had, I think he would have addressed it. It was not one of the things that divided the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome. Uh, there were other things that divided them. So he writes about those things. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that I think is 
why scripture does not directly uh, address abortion um, as a, a the practice that was known back then. Yeah. Um, we have to go to for specifically Christian uh, instances of uh, uh, talking about abortion. We have to go to something like the Didache or some of the early other church fathers, um, also the uh, Epistle Epistle of Barnabas and uh, other other letters before we start naming it specifically. And the Christian mindset, I think it it would have been understood generally as falling under the broad category of murder. Um, that is the language that is used. Uh, you shall not uh, murder by means of abortion. But yeah, it, it, it is not mentioned. But what about passages that speak to the personhood of the unborn? You mentioned earlier that it it, it might be somewhat surprising that abortion is a political issue when you would see it maybe more as a moral issue. I think you might also agree too that um, that there's you know some elements of uh, of a philosophical understanding of what it means to be human um, involved in this too. And so, it sh what about what does the Bible give us in terms of understanding personhood and how that might relate to one's uh, status as being unborn in, in utero. Yeah, so uh, with uh, with all of these questions, um, yeah, scripture may not address the direct question we have about a topic, but, and here's where I would say, yes, scripture does have the answers to life's questions, mm -hmm. and when we read it a little more broadly to look at the principles that are there, when something's not addressed on a direct rule level, we might say, um, then we have to look for those principles. And those, I think, um, are abundant in scripture. Um, a couple of passages come to mind um, that address it fairly directly, uh, this question of just sort of the status of the unborn or preborn child. Uh, Psalm 139 I think both, both, both of these passages are fairly familiar, perhaps, to many Christians, but Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, uh, speaking to God, this whole psalm is a prayer to God. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. So it's fairly clear there that the writer is seeing uh, this really relational um, sort of connection with God even as far back as in the mother's womb where God is um, knitting together, it says, you know, these uh, inward parts, fearfully and wonderfully creating and making in the womb uh, before birth. So that one I think is um, about as direct as it gets in scripture addressing just this principle of what's the status of this Preborn child. Yeah. Um, I want, 
I hadn't noticed this before uh, until just now. Yeah. But as you're reading those passages and you you get this kind of imagery of of knitting together and being woven together, it, it's interesting to cast God as the one knitting and the one doing the weaving. Because unless I am mistaken, and if I am, I apologize. Uh, my expertise is more uh, New Testament studies and era and culture. But I would assume that knitting and weaving would be more traditionally maternal roles hmm. rather than you know, uh, paternal roles. And, and so to, to describe God in these overtly maternal activities while talking about the child uh, in his her mother's womb, I, I think that's pretty fascinating and, and and you know a little nuance there that I hadn't noticed before. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I think that's good. Yeah, and and of course there's a I mean we would say there's a scientific process happening mm-hmm. here. You can describe biologically and all of that, but just as in the you know formation of life itself, uh, you can describe it biologically, but the biblical writers see God as intricately involved in all of this. Um, Luke 1 is where um, Mary uh, goes and visits Elizabeth, who is um, pregnant with her child. Later, he'll be named John, so John the Baptist. But Mary, who has just received news that she will um, be with child as well. So the, the virgin with child and then this old um, barren woman with child. But it's what, the, what happens when uh, they meet up. So this is Luke 1, verse 41 and following. Um, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The child leaped in her, that's Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then um, said in verse uh, 44, as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. So um, I think that's interesting that, it, again, it's indirect here, but the, the child is portrayed here as an agent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we would talk about a child kicking or whatever, you know, it's doing something here. What's interesting here, of course, is the timing of it, and, you know, she sees something maybe miraculous happening here. At the very least, on a a completely just sort of human level of this story, um, it's not like just a clump of cells was doing something, you know? Right, yeah. The way that that the writer is portraying this, and that Elizabeth apparently is portraying this, that I don't think he necessarily understands, you know, like this preborn baby is understanding what's going on or something or can process you know discursively and is self-conscious and all those things i'm not sure that's being suggested by the writer i'm not suggesting it but there's something happening here where there's a personality involved um that it's again the the child is described as an agent that is reacting to a situation so that's i think descriptive way of how that's being portrayed. Um, But yeah, in both of these, it seems like God is knowing, he's relating to the fetus 
in the womb. And then there are other passages I would just call a little more indirect that come to mind. Uh, Job 10 verses 8 and 9, won't look up all of these, but Isaiah 44 um, and Isaiah 49 in a couple of places, maybe, maybe others, but talks about um, the servant of God being formed in the womb. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, Isaiah 44, for example, says, um, he who created you and formed you in the womb, O Israel, you know, again, it's talking about the corporate Israel there. So it's not about a literal birth yeah. being literally in the womb, but it's a metaphor and it's using a birth metaphor. And it is, again, this knowing, this creating and setting apart in the womb, right? Jeremiah 1, 5, Jeremiah has the same sort of language about God knowing uh, him in the womb. So I think those passages are all um, relevant to the discussion. And maybe any one of them on its own, you could kind of, you know, deny the, the force that I'm giving to it here or that I see in it. But all of them together, I think, testify to the importance that's something we see throughout scripture, and that is that children are always a blessing. Even children conceived in, you know, less than ideal circumstances. I don't remember any place in scripture where they say, well, we should get rid of the child or the child, you know, doesn't have a right to live. Um, children are a blessing in general in mm. scripture, and I think should be seen that way. Yeah. It's interesting that, especially when you compare that particular aspect uh, or that particular view of children as a blessing, if you compare that, uh, that biblical trajectory with what we see elsewhere in the ancient Near East and even in the ancient Mediterranean worlds, we see a similar kind of thing, uh, at least similar to some, to some degree. Uh, I, I alluded earlier uh, before the recording that um, the Anchor Bible Dictionaries, which is – it's a little dated these days, but still has some really great information. Um, the Anchor Bible Dictionary entry on abortion in antiquity is really illuminating because it's just a, 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 a thorough review of ancient you know, Mesopotamian you – know, Babylonian, Hittite, Syrian, you, know, you name it, uh, laws concerning uh, induced miscarriage, so, you know, which is something that we see in Exodus. Uh, Exodus gets mentioned. Um, but also uh, later laws about the willful destruction of an unborn child, especially in, uh, in Greek and Roman and in Jewish, uh, Jewish thought as well, represented in uh, Philo and I think Josephus, that generally – there is a concern for the well-being of the child. In these extra-biblical sources, the well-being of the child as a potential contributor to the needs of the community and the state. And while that is, that is different from, from maybe the biblical trajectory, I think there is at least some similarity to where Generally speaking, this child is precious. This child is um, is the key to the preservation of 
the line or the or the community or the state or 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 whatever it is it's it's fascinating how despite these uh, differences in in cultures across time and space there is that common thread that runs through um, a lot of the legislation we find that deals specifically or by way of implication with abortion. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of just in the Roman context, the uh, marriage laws that were passed under Augustus Caesar. So there were requirements for Roman citizens once they reached a certain age to be married. Um, and if you weren't, then you paid a fine, basically a tax on being single. <laughs> now, that's about marriage, but the point there also is about um, procreation and the uh, getting of children, the raising of good Roman citizens also. Um, so yeah, there was legislation there, and there's legislation even in our common laws today when you bracket out abortion that uh, seem to really um, speak to the personhood, the dignity of the life of the, the pre-born. So like I think in most states, if not all, um, if a pregnant woman is murdered, the, the uh, perpetrator will be charged with double homicide. Um, that only makes sense if the the uh, baby in the womb is treated as a person. I mean, that's what's happening there. So yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a lot more that we could get into as far as you know historical legislation on this and how that might uh, be relevant for discussions of what we see in the biblical text. But uh, I want to move on and ask this. Um, We've alluded to this earlier, but what kinds of attitudes toward abortion do we see throughout Christian tradition, throughout church history? Has there been kind of two camps like there seems like there are today, or has it been generally one-sided? What, what have we seen throughout church history on ideas on abortion? In short, it has been um, a one-sided um, take on this, and you've already um, uh, cited the earliest evidence. In other words, what we're seeing in scripture when we talk about what are the principles in scripture uh, that seem to support a pro-life position and the impermissibility of abortion is confirmed throughout the early history of the church. And then that is, that, that is a thread that is dominant throughout the entire history of the church. So the Didache, again, this is uh, end epistle of Barnabas, which is early second century. Both of these are reflecting um, first century oral instruction in the church, yeah. moral, moral instruction in this case. So um, that was not questioned. It was mentioned, not because Christians didn't know about you know, what they should think about this, but because um, these are instruction manuals, oral catechesis or instruction for pagans who were becoming Christians. So for pagans, yeah, it is a 
is a debatable question uh, yeah. in, in practice that was known and, and done. But for Christians, they, and for those coming into the Christian community, they needed to be told um, what is in that case, in the Didache, it is an expansion of those commandments, the love commandments and the do not murder, as you said, uh, mm -hmm. commandment there. And it's just saying, here is a way that that commandment is often broken in our pagan culture, um, but we will not break that yeah. <laughs> in that way in the Christian community. So Tertullian, uh, late second, early third century church father in the Latin speaking West also uh, is very clear about the um, universal Christian prohibition against abortion. And that continues throughout the medieval and into the early modern period um, without exception. I mean, there may be debates you know, in the medieval period, I'm aware of some debates about when the soul actually, um, you know, comes into the uh, womb uh, and into that child. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk about the, um, when the child is, when you can feel the child kicking and all of those things. Um, some had the, the penalties or the penance laws, you know, penitential laws for people who had abortions before that, um, or a sort of induced miscarriage, we might say. Um, sometimes those penalties were decreased or less. Sometimes they were decreased or less when it came to sort of thinking about the circumstances involved. Uh, you, the audience may or may not be aware that it is often men who force women to have abortions. Mm -hmm. It is even more often the convenience of the man involved. And so those sorts of things would be taken into account, but they none of those can be used to say, well, the church at this period or that period um, didn't care about abortion or just left it up to let women decide. Um, it was That was never the case. So even contraception, forget abortion, contraception, um, was not um, uh, approved of in any uh, mainstream churches until 1930. 1930 was when the Church of England at its Lambeth Conference approved of the use of contraception. And it was only in 1960 when that became widespread with um, the birth control pill. And then in the 60s, in early 70s, the Supreme Court of the US um, approved of contraception first for married people only, and then they opened it up to unmarried people as well. Abortion just came in 1973 as the follow-up to that, a more extreme form of birth control. Mm -hmm. um, but all of that was to free people to have sort of unfettered sex and um, you know, no ties of relationships that children create. Um, anyway, all that to say, all of this is fairly new in the Christian world. Um, the idea of first that contraception is something that should be a part of marriage sexual relations, but especially um, what was decided by the justices at Roe v. Wade. Um, I don't know of any churches, like church groups before Roe v. Wade, who said abortion is permissible. 
So this is something that really their sign, you know, let women decide. This is something that is certainly uh, more common among Christians now in the last 50 years. Yeah. But you don't see it before that. I have, I have read a little of some of the works um, published in the early 20th century from uh, an infamous figure known as Margaret Sanger. Um, and for those who are not familiar, uh, she was uh, she was one of the leading movers and shakers on what was sometimes called the birth control movement. Um, uh, a big eugenicist, uh, which was uh, largely why you know why she felt birth control was such an important thing. Um, a lot of a lot of her talks were given in places. Uh, around her community in the Northeast, but I can't think of a single instance that I've seen where she was speaking at a local church about about this kind of thing. No, I don't think you'll. She find actually it. strongly opposed church teaching on it because, you know, it, in in her mind, it was the. I, this is uncomfortable, but it is simply historical fact that she was uh, she routinely criticized church teaching. As it was brought over by immigrants uh, from you know, places uh, in and around the Italian peninsula, who um, who were contributing in her mind to the um, to the degradation of society because so many of these undesirable uh, that is poor and uh, that is immigrant children were being born. It it is ugly to uh, to even it say that but the these are her words and her thoughts that are you know, readily available online anywhere anybody can find uh, find her writings yeah and i'll also say i should have said this earlier just in kind of historical survey there but um you mentioned in that very first document the practice of exposing children to the natural elements that was sort of um, a late-term abortion, you might say, is that early infanticide. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was an acceptable practice for most people in the Greco-Roman world. Um, a couple of things about that. One is, um, it's interesting to me, just the psychology behind that. I've not really heard many people talk, anybody talk about this, but the, the parent who sees the child, oh, it's a girl, or oh, it's, you know, has these defects or something. The parent doesn't immediately uh, destroy the child or take its life, but kind of let something else do it. You yeah. know, is that not direct murder? You know, I don't know, but let's um, expose the child to the, the elements, you know, put it out in the wilderness or the forest or whatever and let nature take care of it. Um, that is, I think, a testimony to the deep conscience that is within all of us that says, hey, there's something wrong with this and we have to veil it in some way. Um, and so we don't wanna show women, you know, going in for an abortion, um, an ultrasound or talk about what the baby looks like, you know? So we sort of uh, bind ourselves to it so that we can sleep at night, perhaps. Um, 
the other point is that Christians uh, not only opposed abortion in uh, the um, Roman Empire, but were known for rescuing those children who had been exposed and abandoned by their parents. So uh, their reputation was not just, hey, we talk about being pro-life, but they went out and took those children and raised them as their own. So Yeah, yeah. And that that particularly is uh, is relevant when you look at something like the Didache or the Epistle of Barnabas. The uh, the statement that I read: "You shall not commit infanticide." Um, in in Greek, that is worded slightly differently. Uh, we're using English terminology there. But in Greek, it's very clear, you shall not kill that which has been born, right. is the specific Greek wording of what my translation said, which was, you shall not commit infanticide. And it's very clear, you shall not kill that which has been begotten, basically, that which has been born. I, uh, I had not considered that line of, uh, of reasoning, Keith, until I'd read your uh, chapter on abortion in your book ethics beyond rules i think you do a good job of uh treating this topic um directly and also uh, also pastorally which is kind of tried to be the tone that uh, that we've taken here so far um let me switch gears a little bit and ask about something that is maybe a little more philosophical than, uh, say, a historical. I think Christians, uh, based on the biblical trajectory that we looked at earlier, I think Christians can make a pretty compelling argument uh, to at least other Christians for the personhood of the unborn child. But, but what about from a secular perspective? How, how could I, a Christian, maybe make a, a strong or stronger argument for the personhood of this unborn child to uh, to a friend who maybe does not have the same religious convictions that I do, or maybe has no special religious convictions. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's difficult in some ways simply because um, if you have no uh, particular religious faith, then I wonder for that person what um, what is meant by personhood or um, the, the you know personal dignity, the dignity and, and worth of life in the first place. So whatever they mean by that, I suppose the way to get at it is, hey, do you think that um, a born person is uh, worthy of you know the, this right to life? If they do, I don't have to ask on what basis do you, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm glad if they have an inconsistent view that actually comes out Christian, right? <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of that with the uh, agnosticism and atheism, secularism in our society um, that uh, still trades on a lot of Christian principles. And one of those is the uh, right to life uh, for everyone. So if, if, they do agree to that, then it's just a matter of asking about then what's the status of this person before birth, you know, that threshold there. 
scientifically speaking, and so uh, raising no issues of scripture or uh, principles from Christian tradition, scientifically speaking, with successful conception, there is not one other external thing that is added that would change the genetic makeup of the fetus. So any other threshold that would be suggested is subjective and arbitrary. The DNA um, at you know, successful conception, the DNA of that um, human being is complete. What has been conceived will grow into, you know, unless you unless you terminate it yourself, right? Intentionally, will uh, grow into a baby and an adult human being. So, speaking as objectively and scientifically as possible, whatever that conceived thing is spiritually, you can bracket that out. It is biologically a human being. And speaking rationally, I guess my question for someone would be, is there any rationale for a substantial change in the moral status and worth of this human being between the time it's formed at conception and the time it's born? What would be the rationale for some sort of change in its moral worth and status in between those two things? Since nothing is added to it, nothing is done that's different, okay? That's the best I can do with just, yeah. a, a, I would say, an argument based on reason alone. And I think it's, I asked that question because I think the burden of proof is on the person to suggest why a substantial change has happened. I, I will play devil's advocate just for a moment. Okay. Only because I know that this kind of discussion comes up, and this was something that I had mentioned to you earlier as we were discussing the details of what we would talk about. Mm -hmm. um, one might say that capacity, uh, whether mental or physical capacity or something along those lines, might also be an indicator of personhood, and therefore, due to the unborn child's uh, limited capacities that might be the reason for which one deems it more reasonable to terminate the pregnancy kill the unborn child whatever language one is going to use there how from from a secular perspective i think that makes sense but you and i don't operate from a secular perspective so maybe help us kind of walk through the the relevance of capacity for this kind of discussion yeah so there is a, a school of thought in ethics because this relates not only to um, the beginning of life questions but also to end of life questions is can you repeat uh, that just for emphasis because I, I i don't want anyone to miss that point either yeah uh, yeah, please. Yeah, we're talking about capabilities, and if that is what defines personhood, that uh, is relevant to a person who has not yet developed those capabilities, that is a baby, or a person who has lost those capabilities, namely um, an, an, an old person who's suffering from dementia or some sort of mental incompetence. 
someone who's been through a traumatic brain injury maybe um, or is in a persistent vegetative state. All of those kinds of uh, things would uh, apply to them as well. So if you're defining personhood based on, let's call it functionality, all right, what, uh, whether they can function, what are those functions? You know, if it's some sort of self-consciousness or self-awareness or ability to relate, you know, um, fine if someone wants to go there, uh, but to be consistent, still the passing uh, through the birth canal does not automatically make that child able now to function in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're going to say that an unborn child doesn't yet have self-consciousness and those sorts of things, well, neither do, does an infant, neither do probably toddlers, you know, and so most people would be horrified to suggest it, but there are some ethicists who are willing to bite the bullet, atheists who would say, like Peter Singer and others famously, who would say, yeah, infanticide, you know, up through, you know, uh, the toddler years, up through a couple of years old is permissible for that reason. So I think, yeah, the capability really goes down um, a slippery slope that, yeah. And, and it is a slippery slope if you have no mechanism to stop the slide, right? And you've taken that away. If it's capabilities of self-consciousness, then um, not only do the preborn babies go, but your infants and toddlers, you're profoundly mentally disabled, uh, those in, an, in a vegetative or incompetent state. So there's that. Now, from a biblical point of view, I would say that all of those passages we looked at that sort of seem to respect the preborn life aren't so much about how that child relates to God, but about how God relates to the child. Yeah. So it's about, if it's about relationship, it's not what the child can do. It's that God did these things to and for that baby in the womb as he's forming it. That's what gives a person dignity is that we're the recipient of life from God, not based on whether I can, you know, do math or think about myself as a person. Let's really hope it's not mathematical ability. Or whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever threshold we give to that is, um, at the end of the day, arbitrary also. Yeah. So. I, I like the emphasis there too, uh, or highlighting the the fact that the initiative is uh, is God's initiative there in the determining and valuing of life um, that is very much an act of God's uh, God's graciousness um, to take that divine initiative. Uh, we've been I've been teaching a Wednesday evening class uh, here at church uh, on the covenants of the Old Testament, and one thing that we've uh, highlighted several times is you know the the divine initiative in uh, in generating these covenants, whether it's with Adam or Noah or Abraham or you know, the other covenants that we see you know, with uh, with Moses and David, yeah, I, I can see some uh, kind of a, a strand of thought that runs through a lot of this discussion related to divine initiative. Um, sorry, 
Where you going to Okay. One thing that uh, has been, one thing that I, I've spent several time talking with uh, with a good friend about is uh, this issue of uh, of rights, you know, what we might call personal rights or individual liberties or or something along those lines. The Bible speaks very highly on the value of human life. I mean, the passages that you um, gave there are in, indicative of that, even in you know what we might call a a a more brutal society as um, as represented in the Old Testament, there's still a very clear value on on human life. It, it rooted especially in the uh, in the prologue to the Mosaic Covenant. You know, you shall not murder, um, and among other things uh, listed throughout there, uh, throughout the Old Testament, and especially on into the New Testament. Very clear about human value of human life. But it, the Bible does it, unless I'm mistaken. It does seem to be relatively quiet on things like personal rights and individual liberties, and those, those uh, personal rights, individual rights, get brought up a lot in discussions about abortion, and uh, also in discussions about gun control. Now we're not going to talk about gun control today. But he mentioned that earlier. Yes, here's an example of something that the Bible doesn't specifically mention. Um, rights do seem to be, at least at the heart of or near the heart of, the the issue with abortion. What what place do personal rights or individual liberties have in a in a Christian worldview? Am I am I on on good ground or a slippery slope? If I try to assert that I have certain rights that one should not tread upon, yeah, well, from from a Christian perspective, yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I would say a lot of uh, vice uh, in our society gets excused on the ground of personal autonomy and rights, and so maybe we should have a bit of a skeptical. Um, uh, attitude uh, when that is brought up and is maybe the only thing that kind of is appealed to to support or justify a certain practice. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to talk about rights that are natural that God has given to us. It's another, and I think are worth defending. It's another thing to talk about rights that, um, say, the U.S. Constitution grants to U.S. citizens, um, which I am, and probably most of your listeners are, um, and I think those should be defended too, maybe on different grounds, because we are talking about perhaps different things. Um, it's a political uh, question on the, the one hand. The other, the former, is a, um, is a natural and even moral question. But for the Bible, even from a Christian perspective, I would just say it's not all or nothing. It's, it's not like there are no rights or individual liberties, or it's all your autonomous choice and nobody else, you know, uh, relates to that or, or bears on that question. Um, so, yeah, the notion of human rights and individual freedom of choice is based on the Christian worldview. Uh, there's a lot uh, you know, about our um, 
in, you know, enjoying freedom and individual liberties that goes back to a Christian worldview. So according to Christianity, uh, we have the right to call an unjust law no law at all, and to use the language from Acts uh, to obey God rather than men. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, I think that, that comes into play there. I'm not used to reading, is it Acts 4 or Acts 5? I'm not used to reading that passage in that in that light, but that that seem it coheres with my preferences. I'll <laughs> I might say that, but I, that that seems reasonable at least to me. Yeah, and when I say you know a law uh, that is unjust is no law at all, I'm just channeling there also Christian tradition, origin, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, this is famously what he does in his mm-hmm. letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, and so we don't we don't have we're not obliged to uh, follow those laws. In other words, there are rights given to us as humans that supersede any human authority um, or political authority. There there are there is such a thing as God given rights. Yeah. Okay. Now I think that again that shouldn't be just conflated with bill of rights rights. You know, <laughs> some of them I think do overlap. Some of them may not. Um, but yeah, there are, I think, uh, some rights that we're called on to uh, defend as Christians. But yeah, so all that to say, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, that at the same time, according to scripture, individual rights are not unlimited, right? So in a church context, for example, uh, my personal freedom may be restricted by the conscience of someone else, mm-hmm. Romans 14. Um, in a marriage context, my personal freedom may be restricted by the desires of my spouse, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, certainly for a Christian, personal freedom is restricted or ought to be restricted by one's allegiance to God. Um, so the language of slavery or servant is used in Paul, especially we are yeah. slaves to God. So where's the human, where's the autonomous choice there, you know, um, when, and the point there is when it comes to matters of sin and harming oneself or harming others. And, you know, first Corinthians six, uh, 19 and 20, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Yeah. So that restricts freedom to sin, freedom to harm. All right. So yes, I do agree. Individual autonomy and personal rights as some sort of unlimited freedom um, of the individual to choose as uh, defined by modern culture, that is not highly valued in scripture. Um, the relevance of this to abortion is, um, is this a harmless thing that's being done here? You know, the, I mean, you have the autonomous choice to do this. Okay, well, um, arguably, uh, I maybe even be tempted to say inarguably you're hurting another mm. and probably hurting yourself in the process. Yeah. Yeah. So that there are restrictions on the, on the individual rights and liberties, I think. Yeah. That, um, that helps me clarify some of my own thinking about that. I, I lean more towards letting, letting folks, um, live 
with their individual liberties and ensuring that you know all of those are in, are able to be enjoyed and then in in love and um <clears throat> in in love and compassion and uh and calls to higher dignity urging someone voluntarily to maybe see that the way of Christ offers them something that you know that can help them use their rights and liberties uh, to live more fully rather than to take those rights and liberties only to find themselves enslaved to sin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask about was, um, was maybe some terminology that, uh, that some people find problematic. Um, so especially after the Roe v. Wade was overturned last week, I see some Christians claiming that they're, pro-life brothers and sisters are really just pro-birth and they cite a lack of support for you know, various programs or policies which would benefit mothers uh, first off is what do you think about that criticism do you think that's fair and and if so um maybe what are some effective ways that christians could support mothers who might otherwise consider abortion if they if they find themselves uh, hard-pressed yeah um i've heard that too and that's a common criticism usually i would say from non-christians uh, in my experience but in general um it's not a fair criticism now are there instances uh, of individuals who don't support would-be mothers. Sure, you can always find exceptions to that. Uh, the most direct example that I've seen in my own life, just in church work and experience, I've seen this or heard of it more than once, is you know you hear of like a church or Christians hesitating to throw a shower, a baby shower for um, a teenager who got pregnant or uh, somebody who is not married who uh, became pregnant. Um, I don't agree with that, uh, you know, um, but the sentiment is understandable um, in this way. Their rationale is we don't want to condone premarital sex. Mm. Okay? And by giving gifts, we're condoning it. I would say you're not condoning it. You know, we need to be a little more nuanced than that, okay? It's not the baby's fault, all of that, you know, let's do our best to embrace and, uh, and, and uh, give some grace and all of those things. And of course, a lot of this is situational, it's the attitude of the, the mother and everything. But those are just kind of the individual instances when I can think of someone not being supportive. Um, in general, I've been impressed actually by how many believers put their time and resources resources and homes for uh, pregnant women who need help. I mean, it, all of these things you see, these, as I say, pregnancy centers, um, uh, homes for children, nearly all of them are supported by, are started by, staffed by, and financially supported by Christians, um, uh, believers in Christ. And uh, it's, 
so, so I think that's a, a testimony to um, people putting their money and their finances and their time and their resources where their mouth is. Um, so I can tell you a lot more stories of people who've actually done that also on an individual level. You know, I mean, I just, I just think about like my own parents who took in and housed um, women who were unmarried and pregnant and didn't know what they were going to do. And in some cases, whose boyfriends had pressured the woman to have an abortion. Um, my parents adopted one of those babies and, and raised her as their own. So, and, and then people from their church helped them by uh, subsidizing the adoption and legal fees, wow. you know, thousands of dollars. So, uh, yeah, there are exceptions, but I just don't see the, the church in general saying, no, we have no interest in uh, supporting financially or otherwise women who choose life. Uh, for their babies. Um, so all that to say, I can still answer your second question though, even though I deny the criticism that <laughs> sticks as yeah. a general thing, can we do better? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and is this an opportunity? I mean, the world's going to be watching now and as if they haven't before, but um, they're going to be watching to see that we pro-life people are um, pro-life all the way. And so we need to, I think, be even more creative and committed to um, helping out um, and, and showing that uh, we care for uh, the mothers and for these children. So that need will probably be increasing um, in states where abortion will be restricted or banned now. Mm -hmm. Um, but every church, so I, I don't, I'm not sure I have the kind of the, uh, you know, magic uh, answer to and solution to all of this, but it just seems like some really easy things we can do is that every church and probably every individual Christian who can ought to be supporting institutions that care for vulnerable women who uh, find themselves, you know, pregnant or new mothers and children who need a home. There are already organizations that do fantastic job of helping people in these situations. And the ones I know of, a lot of them are just strapped for resources. Mm -hmm. They should have what they need. We should be giving them what they need. We should be volunteering. We should be um, helping as we can. I've always thought, and this is just a, a thing I've, I've said over the years and thought about a lot, um, and whenever I have the venue for saying it, I say it, so here's a venue for saying it, but I've always thought that churches should offer to pay the legal fees for Christian couples in their congregation who want to adopt. Um, it's just, I mean, I know the, the real cost is in the uh, you know, upkeep, not the initial <laughs> cost there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a real barrier um, to a lot of people, I think, who otherwise would adopt when you're staring down just the, this initial cost of many thousands of dollars, you know, we're talking about five digits uh, uh, amount of money. And it's, that's ridiculous. That needs to, so legally, that process needs to be streamlined. 
um, adoption um, and not uh, made such a burden on people who would love to be a, you know, provide a home for, um, for kids. So, yeah. When I was uh, in, still in school at Asbury Seminary, their, um, their theme for one year or a couple of years was uh, attempt something big. Um, and it was a challenge to the student body there to you know, really step out boldly in faith and let, you know, put yourself in a position where you are ready to do something extraordinary if, if God does indeed push you in that direction. And I distinctly remember one couple there. Um, I think that both they both might have been master students, or at least one of them was, where their attempt something big got to be a, a pretty widely you know, locally known campaign uh, to urge a, a mother who might consider abortion to let that couple of Asbury students adopt their baby. And um, you know, I, I saw a bunch of their you know, ad campaigns and things like that on social media. And I, I don't know what happened mm. in that process. Um, but I, I do think that you have raised at least one very specific way to a couple of specific ways that Christians can indeed help out in this situation to put our money where our mouth is, right? I mean, to put it kind of colloquially there, to pay the legal fees of uh, a person in your couple in your churches looking to adopt and to really support with time, energy, and resources, local pregnancy care centers and and things like that. Um, I, I, I think what you have presented here in this last question, I think that corroborates pretty well with my experience as well um, with kind of the the voluntary uh, support of organizations and um, and 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 things along those lines I I, th I think one dimension to this criticism of you're not pro-life you're pro-birth is the criticism it lends itself easily to some political criticism where, you know, one might be unwilling to, you know, have their taxes raised for, you know, additional, you know, social programs or something along those lines that might help, um, that might help ease a, a mother's burden. Um, and, and there may be some legitimacy to that criticism as well. This is just me and I, I'm, I'm not asking you to, to say your, to share your thoughts on this particular matter one way or the other, but my gut feeling is, as a Christian, my first response should be uh, to to support someone voluntarily uh, with my own time and money, uh, as and for the church to do that voluntarily, rather than to to lean on the the state or local governing uh, bodies to do that kind of thing. Oh, and so yeah. maybe there's some legitimacy in that criticism, but I, I would say that that's, that's rooted in how I think the church should operate rather than, or what the church should do rather than what the state should do. Yeah. Um, in general, I agree with that. Um, I don't think we should be turning over. 
I, I feel like in general, we should turn over as little as possible actually to the government. Um, it's shown itself over many decades and maybe centuries to be very inefficient at um, uh, doing, uh, organizing large scale programs. Okay. So I think the last thing we want is the government, you know, to put into, to pay taxes to the government, to implement a program to help, um, to help women uh, who have an unwanted pregnancy or something. Yeah, no, this should be uh, for the churches, for the, these pregnancy centers that are uh, supported by churches. I would be all for giving them tax breaks, you know, and, and giving them some sort of incentives. I mean, in, in some states, you do have states supporting uh, or, or giving some money to some of those pregnancy centers, um, though that is not always without controversy also. But mm -hmm. if tax money can go to Planned Parenthood, who, you know, uh, have made a lot of money in the abortion industry, then I don't know why tax money couldn't also go to um, these centers and organizations that support mothers who choose life um, yeah. and then let them uh, you know uh, organize let them let those centers who know what they're doing uh, and do it best let them uh, let them do it give them the freedom and the resources to do it yeah. uh, government wants to chip in with that great but I don't think the government yeah needs to be overseeing any of these things yeah from yeah and again that's that, that again that's my perspective and it it is rooted in my understanding of how the church ought to operate so yeah. i in the comments below i welcome a, a charitable discussion about <laughs> that particular approach yeah yeah charitable dis charitable discussion on any of these things if that's if that's fair yeah yeah we'll just give that caveat as well um Keith, as we wrap up here today, is there any anything else that uh, maybe we've missed or or some you know, final pitch or plea or something that you like to bring us home with? Oh, um, you know, I was thinking of something a moment ago and it slipped my mind. Um, no, I guess not. Um, I think, I mean, just as far as the church goes, I think it's okay to be happy about um First of all, just the the court decided that no, um, the uh, right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution does not guarantee the right to an abortion. That's all that the court is saying is that that was that was not in the Constitution. That was not hidden in the right to privacy somewhere. Um, but also, I think there's nothing wrong with simply thanking God that. Hey, thousands of um, unborn babies will not be killed now. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. And if that's not something we can at least, we don't have to celebrate it, we don't have to rub people's faces in it or whatever. But um, if we can't thank God for that and even mention it, you know, to other Christians, um, then that's too bad, I think. Um, at the same time, as we said there at the end, kind of recognize. The, our responsibility, you know, if, if this is the, the way things are going to be now, if we're in a state where uh, abortions are going to be restricted or banned, then those opportunities for um, putting our 
thoughts and our words into actions is those will open up to us. So we should also be praying to God to open our eyes for those opportunities to care for those who are vulnerable and need it. Yeah. Yeah. Keith, I really appreciate your time, sir. I will, uh, I know there are another handful of venues out there where people can find you doing things with the Center for Christian Studies. You've written a handful of books, particularly this one that I mentioned earlier, Ethics Beyond Rules, where you have a chapter on abortion. From that chapter, I drew a lot of the questions that uh, I um, that I asked you today. And so I'll, I'll have links to all those things uh, in the comments below and in the, in the description of, of this video. But I really appreciate your time and uh, appreciate uh, your... Uh, your pastoral approach to uh, dealing with these issues. Uh, at no point did I see you uh, gloat or do any of the things that you recommended that Christians not do when it comes to these kinds of conversations. Thanks, Kevin. It's been an enjoyable conversation. Yes, sir. Keith, take care. We'll see you next time. <laughs>